welcome to the first episode of Public Problems. My name is Justin Bullock, and I'll be your host. In this episode, I chat with David Bradford. David is a professor of public policy at the University of Georgia, and he's done some really interesting work on medical cannabis legislation. David and I have a nice chat where we talk about the background of medical cannabis legislation, uh, how it's evolved over time, how the science uh, with using cannabis as a medicine has changed over time, and sort of where we are now with this policy issue. We also tie it to the opioid epidemic, which will become clear to you in the interview as to why. Um, so I hope you enjoy this first episode. This is going to be the sort of format that I use moving forward to chat with policy experts, uh, people out working in the field on public problems, and have a about an hour-long conversation with them about what it is that they work on and how that's related to um, some of the public problems uh, going on right now. So I hope you enjoy the episode, and um, without any further delay, um, here's my conversation with David Bradford. I'm here today with uh, David Bradford. Uh, David Bradford is a professor of public policy at the University of Georgia in the School of Public and International Affairs. He holds the Busby Chair in Public Policy in the Department of Public Administration and Policy. David has published over 60 peer-reviewed journal articles on topics ranging from healthcare quality, hospital efficiency, the cost of preventative medicine, demand for cigarettes, direct-to-consumer advertising, off-label marketing of pharmaceuticals, and now medical marijuana, which is one of what we're going to talk about with David today. Um... David, just kind of starting off, I, I'd never looked through your CV. That's not something I usually do with friends and people I know where. But I noticed that in 1991, your first published paper was on the price of beer. <laughs> yeah, that's so right. It's been kind that's of a long interest paper. for you, huh? <laughs> so before we get started, um, in all full disclosure, I'd like to say that uh, David is a good friend of mine. Uh, he served on my dissertation committee. We're in regular touch, so I can't claim to be completely objective when it comes to evaluating his research, uh, but I'm hoping that we can at least facilitate a conversation and you can um, have some takeaways from what he's done and kind of judge for yourself. So um, getting started here, I, the, I think a good way to start this, David, would be to give me a little bit of context about the public problem, because uh, the goal of this podcast is to kind of educate people on current issues and uh, big policy problems. And the one you really you're undertaking a couple here with some of this research you've done, but let's start with uh, with medical marijuana. So can you tell me a little bit about the history of medical marijuana? My understanding as I was doing a little bit of research, uh, looking back through your papers and uh, doing some work, uh, just kind of looking into medical marijuana, um, is that over the past 20, 20-ish years, many states have passed legislation to legalize marijuana for medicinal purposes, but the federal government still considers all marijuana to be illegal. I think it's a Schedule One drug. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about that. So what does this mean? Where are we kind of in the process of medical marijuana legislation? Sure. Uh, and, and first, thanks for having me on your, uh, on your show uh, and for uh, highlighting these issues surrounding, uh, you know, a number of issues I suspect we'll touch on today surrounding medical cannabis and, um, 
and opiates and a, and a whole host of intertwined policy issues. So, you know, the history of cannabis policy in the U.S., and, and I actually will tend to use the phrase cannabis rather than marijuana. Uh, and, and part of that is because of the reason of how we got to where we are uh, as far as um, as far as policies go in the United States. Um, cannabis uh, is a product that, of course, people have used for thousands of years. Uh, it's indigenous uh, to both the Americas and also to sort of the Himalayan regions uh, uh, in uh in the East, but in the United States, it was a product that was legal uh, and um, really wasn't something that uh, was uh, highlighted as a negative for for many years here. In fact, you know, hemp, which is uh, 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 cannabis that just hasn't been uh, grown and refined for its THC levels, uh, was a primary uh, crop in the colonial America and, and in some areas people had to grow it. It was, it was uh, essential for, uh, for commerce. Um, but starting in the early 1900s in the United States, uh, the Congress began to try, the federal government began to try to constrain the use of cannabis, mainly because it was identified with uh, uh, Hispanic uh, people and uh, African-American people. Um, that's where the term marijuana comes from. It was the the term that was used sort of on the street as opposed to the scientific name of cannabis. And so it became almost a term, a derogatory term applied to the plant. Um, the first attempt to control it was a tax act in the 1930s. They didn't make it, uh, cannabis illegal, but it did make it prohibitively expensive to legally grow. The, the real uh, constraint on cannabis came in the 1970 uh, Controlled Substances Act, which, as you point out, sets up a schedule of drugs. Um, from Schedule One, the most restrictive, all the way down to Schedule Five, the least restrictive drug, and and after that, you know things like aspirin wouldn't be on the schedule at all. But cannabis was put in the most restrictive category, along with LSD and heroin and methamphetamine. Um, and the criteria for being a Schedule One drug is that the drug have a high potential for abuse, and there will be no medically accepted uses for the product. And in 1970, that might not have been an unreasonable position for Congress to take. Uh, it certainly was widely believed that cannabis was very addictive, and it was widely believed it was exclusively a recreational drug. However, in the intervening, what are we at now, 45 or so years, uh, the evidence has very clearly shifted. The best longitudinal evidence recently available for the past decade and a half uh, indicates pretty clearly that cannabis is not a particularly addictive substance, uh, certainly not as addictive as alcohol, much less dangerous than alcohol. Right? Uh, and secondly, in the past 15, 20 years, it's become uh, extremely clear that cannabis has a number of medical uses. And indeed, it has a number of medically accepted uses now. One of the key things I'd point you to is in uh, January of 2017, just, just this year as you and I are talking, um, the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, the authoritative voice for issues of science in the world, uh, uh, published a comprehensive review of over 10,000 English language peer-reviewed publications. And their conclusion was, you know, they, their, their goal was to, was to make definitive statements. And their conclusion was, that there is conclusive evidence that cannabis is effective for managing chronic pain, 
for managing spasticities uh, and, and certain kinds of nausea, particularly that associated with chemotherapy, um, and for uh, uh, appetite stimulants. There were a number of other areas where they said there's strong evidence, even though they couldn't say conclusive. But the conclusive part is important because what it does mean now is that the medical community agrees that cannabis does have accepted uses. And so on the plain reading of the Controlled Substances Act, it should be removed from Schedule 1. It should go down to Schedule 2 or 3, or probably Schedule 3, frankly, if you, if you really applied the law as it, as it was written. So that's the federal position. Today, it's still illegal at the federal level to possess, to sell, to in any way interact with cannabis. But as you point out, states have had their own views on the matter. And starting in 1996 with California, a number of states began to legalize the use of cannabis for medical purposes uh, uh, with respect to their own laws. Uh, now, 29 states and the District of Columbia have approved the use of cannabis for uh, medical reasons. And most of the states, if not all of the states, have a list of, of conditions for which a person could get uh, cannabis legally. Um, and so there's a conflict between state law and federal law that we're in the process of working out. I, uh, I had heard um, that marijuana was a term that was uh, that was sort of came up during that time period to be derogatory towards Hispanics. Um, and I, I'd forgotten about that until you brought it up. Yeah, this, uh, you know, as as with many public policies in the United States, uh, there are always racial undertones. Uh, well, not always, but there are oftentimes racial undertones in, in the origin of the policies. And you know, one of the great things about uh, about the country is that it's able to sort of reform itself constantly, right? Uh, and I think we're in the process of of recognizing uh, that and reforming that. And you know, it's, it's I, again, I, I don't want to say that in 1970 that the Controlled Substances Act was a racist, uh, you know, ignorant uh, uh, decision. I think in 1970, a person looking at the evidence might be willing to say, yes, this looks like it's very addictive. Yes, it looks like it's only recreational. Um, and as a consequence, you know, in 1970, the Controlled Substances Act might not have been bad policy. Today, as it's applied to cannabis, it's a very bad policy because what it means is that many patients who could benefit, very clearly benefit quite a lot from access to cannabis, aren't getting it. And they're being pushed towards things like opiates, which kill people, uh, tens of thousands of people a year. Uh, and we know that cannabis actually has never killed anybody. Um, and so we, we really do have uh, badly suboptimal policy right now. That's a nice preview uh, that we're going to get to with your current working paper on uh, how uh, can, uh, medical cannabis laws could help prevent actual overdoses of opioids. Um, and one one thing I'll note too, I, I'll get the uh, National Academy of Sciences report and post that along with the blog because, uh, along with the podcast, because um, I remember you shared that with me when it came out, and I was just sort of blown away by the scientific consensus. I knew that there was some evidence for the the benefits of medical cannabis, but I didn't realize how kind of how conclusive some of this evidence has become as of late. Um, yeah, absolutely. The uh, uh, you know the, the the government has, as again for a variety of reasons, put a number of hurdles in the path of people who want to do clinical research on cannabis and. In fact, you have to, because it's called the NIDA rule for the National Institute of Drug Abuse, um, 
it's it's if you're going to do any clinical research on cannabis, you've got to purchase cannabis from a NIDA approved uh, grow facility. And there is currently and has for the last 40 years been only one such facility, which is University of Mississippi. Uh, and, you know, the the strains of cannabis that they have available are uh, 30 years out of date uh, and uh, and there's quality control problems. And uh, so. You know, it's it's difficult to do research, but even in the face of that difficulty, people have done it, and they've done enough of it that we now know that for some things, cannabis can be uh, can be an effective uh, intervention without some of the side effects that other drugs have. Now, it has its own side effects. There's no let's not, let's be clear, right? Cannabis, at least at, at least the common brands that people would get or strains people get access to, is intoxicating. And so there's no question that for many, for if you're going to use cannabis to treat your pain, you're using standard cannabis, then, you know, you, you have to be as careful with using that as you would be with any other sedating, intoxicating um, pharmaceutical, and, and many prescription drugs are. Um, now, I, I will say also that, that there's been a lot of progress made on high CBD, low THC, and, and CBD and THC are two of the active, two of the cannabinoids that are active in cannabis. There's been a lot of progress made on high CBD, strains that don't in fact uh, have any psychoactive properties and so uh, you know you don't have to get high to be treated with cannabis any longer um but you know you'd have to be you'd have to be very deliberate about seeking out one of those strains excellent i i did not know that either okay well in the in the in moving the conversation along i think there's a couple pieces that would be good for a listener to understand and before we move on to what your actual contribution through some of your work um, has been lately. So it's a, it's a little bit just to recap on the actual history of cannabis in the U.S. Uh, and even a little bit further back and then uh, how the, the science around the benefits of cannabis has improved since the 70s. And now we it's pretty well established that there are health benefits across uh, a few different ailments um, that cannabis can be used for. Now, the other piece of this, I think, is the another piece of this I think is important for the listener to understand is uh, your work focused specifically on Medicare, and there's some reasons why that we can get to in your when we start talking about the paper, the first paper, and then you do one on Medicaid. But just give a kind of a thousand foot overview for people who I know that health insurance is kind of a controversial topic right now, and also people often don't know kind of what the government, different government insurance programs do. So just give me the kind of the, what's the difference in Medicare and Medicaid? And uh, tell me, you also mentioned Part D in your paper, and then just tell me kind of what Part D is and how that's different from other parts of Medicare. Okay, yeah, gr- uh, great point. I think people people probably uh, might not have the uh, perspective on this. So um, the federal government uh, is involved in providing health insurance to people through a number of avenues. There's, of course, uh, services provided to veterans uh, and active duty personnel, which we'll set aside. Uh, there's services provided to Native Americans that we'll set aside. But the two biggest insurance plans that the government runs and subsidizes are Medicare and Medicaid. The names sound very similar to one another, and they oftentimes get confused. And, and frankly, people like you and I, when we're talking about health policy, will, you know, mm-hmm. in presentations, yeah, yeah. stumble around and use the wrong word sometimes. So, Medicare is the insurance plan that is designed mostly for elderly people in the United States. There are disabled people who are on it, but think about it broadly speaking as something for elderly individuals. Medicare has got a number of 
parts to it. Uh, just because it's a government program, uh, it's, uh, it's, of course, broken out and managed as, as different components. And so there's part A that covers for hospital services. There's part B that covers for uh, uh, outpatient doctor visits. Again, these are broad characterizations. There's part C that would say, oh, it's a managed care plan, and we're going to integrate everything into one. And then there's this part D, which was actually created by the George W. Bush administration. And uh, for the first time in the Bush administration, part D was uh, founded to pay for prescription drugs. Before that, Medicare actually didn't cover outpatient, I mean, kind of physician uh, prescription drugs that you and I might go to a pharmacy and, and buy, right? So Medicare Part D is prescription drug coverage for the elderly. Um, and Medicare is funded uh, partially by uh, by uh, premiums that the enrollees pay and partially, mostly, frankly, by uh, tax subsidies uh, from work, people who work. So, uh, you, if you have a pay stub, you you might see um, uh, you might see that you've got uh, a payroll tax that comes out and different from your income tax, and that payroll tax is mostly going to sub to pay Medicare. Right. So, all of us collectively support Medicare, and then enrollees contribute contribute some as well through premiums. Medicaid, on the other hand, is a program that is mostly aimed at uh, well, actually, it's aimed at two groups: low income people. Uh, and uh, and then um, elderly people who are in nursing homes. So Medicaid pays for about 65% of all nursing home services. Um, but it's really kind of, if you want to think about it broadly, think about it as the government insurance for low-income individuals, particularly low-income children. Uh, there's another type of Medicaid called uh, the State Ch Children's Health Insurance Plan, S-CHIP is often referred to, and uh, that's just an expansion of Medicaid that covers uh, low-income children. Currently, about 25% of kids in the U.S. qualify under, under Medicaid. So those are, broadly speaking, what the two pro programs are. Okay, and, and as, we'll, as we get to your papers, you have one kind of on the effects of, leg of legalizing cannabis for M Medicare and what it does on the, uh, to save money. And same at Medicaid. And then also the working paper that we'll get to kind of talks about the potential lives that are saved from uh, opioid overdoses, which is the third piece of this that I want to set a little bit of context for. And it might not be immediately clear to a listener why opioid epidemic is relevant to work on medical cannabis. So maybe you could tell me just a little bit about the opioid epidemic and why I'm highlighting that or why you think I'm highlighting that as part of this overarching problem that you're working on? Sure. Well, the, I mean, uh, as I'm sure your listeners will know, um, we have had a growing crisis in this country of people who um, have been misusing, uh, abusing, and then ultimately dying from uh, opioid exposure. This comes uh, to primary areas, although actually recently, sadly, three uh, primary areas. One are his heroin, which is uh, a, an opiate, is a derivative of the poppy plant that's uh, long been abused. Um, the second are prescription drugs, uh, prescription opiates like Oxycontin is sort of the poster child for prescription opiates that have been abused and, and, and uh, led to death, but there's hydrocodone and and uh, you know a host of other methadone uh, can be itself uh, uh, those often used to treat opiate abuse is can can be a drug of abuse. So these are again derivatives of the 
uh, poppy that have been processed uh, through pharmaceutical means and, and, and prescription, legal prescription drugs have uh, been produced. Very, very important pro uh, uh, products, right? It's, it's absolutely clear that, that uh, for people who need access to opiates like oxycontin and hydrocodone, uh, they can be uh, they can be life saving uh, in many cases, but they're also very very easily uh, uh, people can very easily addicted to them, and so they're they're commonly abused. Um, and sadly, recently, um, a drug called fentanyl, which is a synthetic opiate that is extraordinarily powerful. Um, fentanyl is a drug that was developed uh, to manage breakthrough pain and cancer, and only. Uh, illegally uh, prescribed to people who are already on an opiate. Um, fentanyl binds so tightly to people's opiate receptors that it would um, it could kill you if you didn't have some other opiate in your system. Um, it's about um, it's about a uh, hundred times more potent than morphine, right? So it's uh, it's a very potent drug. Um, drug cartels have recently found either ways to synthesize it themselves. Or have gotten access to the active ingredient from uh, from the producers. Um, most of our drugs actually are produced in China and India uh, uh, in in bulk, and then redistributed here. And they've perhaps gotten access to there. And fentanyl has um, has made its way into the market uh, in the United States uh, illegal drug market, um, where a, a heroin addict might. Um, might dose themselves once a day. Uh, a fentanyl addict will dose themselves five or six times a day. And the problem with any opiate is that the things that give you the high are very are, are located a, a large fraction in your body of the things called receptors that give you the the sense of of, of uh, the high that you get from from abusing an opiate are located very near to your centers that control your breathing and your heart, uh, and so too much of an opiate will stop your breathing and lead to death. Right? And so, um, as a consequence of these drugs being available and increasingly available, um, in 2015, the last year that we have a good statistic, or we have complete statistics, uh, the CDC estimates that over 33,000 people died from opiates. Because of the introduction of fentanyl and the rapid spread of fentanyl, fentanyl, you know, a million doses of fentanyl can fit in, of pure fentanyl can fit in an area not much bigger than a shoebox. Um, because of that, uh, it looks like the statistics for 2016 are going to be much more ominous even than 2015. And we may go from 33,000 deaths uh, to 45,000 deaths. And so it's going to be, uh, it, uh, 2016 was a bad year, and I'm sure 2017 is, is no better. So this is something we absolutely need to get our arms around. The reason that these things are linked to cannabis is that if cannabis can treat pain, like opiates treat pain, and if cannabis, if the ca cannabinoid receptors in your body are nowhere near your respiratory and uh, cardiac centers, which is they're not, um, and they can't shut down your breathing, which they can't, um, then it makes sense to ask the question, well, should we try to have people use cannabis rather than an opiate and uh, manage their pain in a way that doesn't put them at risk of death? And um, that would be a good thing. I mean, it's uh, one interesting statistic that you're, that you're, uh, or two, I guess, that your listeners should bear in mind is there's something called a therapeutic index that we have that have been calculated for many substances that we use. This is the ratio 
of the amount of a drug that uh, it takes to kill you, technically called the LD50, right, mm -hmm. divided by the median dose of a drug or the lowest effective dose of, of a drug. Okay. So you can think about it as, a, as the amount that would kill you divided by the commonly used amount. So like with alcohol, it might be if a, if a median drinker has three drinks while having a normal uh, consuming alcohol and they had 30, uh, say the, if, if, 10, uh, if a ratio of 10 killed them, that would be 30, for example. Actually, that's and that's exactly right for alcohol. It's, 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 it's 10. Yeah, Sometimes you get lucky. <laughs> the therapeutic index for heroin is five. Oh man! The therapeutic index for uh, uh, for fentanyl is unknown, but very small, much smaller than uh, than. I mean, I should. It's probably no. I don't know it. Um, the um, the therapeutic index for cannabis can't be calculated because as the as the National Institute of Drug Abuse notes on its website when it talks about cannabis and its medical uses, there's not any documented case in all of clinical history of a person dying from cannabis. Right um, now, nobody dies from a lot of things that that you know you might not want people to take. People don't die from LSD, and we can have another conversation about whether that their therapeutic uses of that or not. But um, but people don't die from cannabis and, and can't die from cannabis. Um, so I think if you're asking yourself, well, we've got two, product, two uh, pathways to treat pain. Um, both may be effective for you know, a set of people, right? Uh, one could kill you, one can't kill you. It seems like a relatively straightforward decision. Yeah, I mean, put in those terms, it's hard to imagine a, a strong case against uh, medical cannabis. I mean, from a scientific standpoint, anyways. Yeah, I don't think there's a scientific case to be made against it. All right, so hopefully now we tied enough pieces together where listener could, uh, where listeners could understand kind of the history of medical cannabis, how the government plays a role in providing insurance, and what that might mean for medical cannabis, and then tied it here to the uh, opioid epidemic, which I imagine uh, most people are aware of, even if not um, to the degree. I actually read somewhere before we shift, David, that it. Uh, Opioid overdose is the primary has been attributed as one of the primary causes for actually decreasing the life expectancy of white men, um, which is is crazy. I actually don't remember the the site, so I have to look that up. But I remember that it was in a, a recent estimate of life expectancy, white men actually had declined for the first time in as as long as anyone had been tracking this, and that one of the potential culprits was the amount of overdoses from uh, opioid abuse. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and that's coming from a series of a couple of papers uh, from two Princeton economists, Ann Case and Angus Deaton. Uh, uh, one was published a couple years ago and one published a few months ago that followed up specifically on the opiate case. And it's right for the, you know, for perhaps the first time since uh, they've been tracking uh, vital statistics uh, in a detailed way, life expectancy for uh white men is declining and opiate abuse is one of the one of the primary culprits uh, well i would say that uh, constitutes as an epidemic then um okay so let's shift from talking about some of the context to what you've actually done to shed light on this issue and and the kind of tact you and your uh co-authors um have taken on this problem so i remember talking with you as this was happening some but your article, Medical Marijuana Laws Reduce Prescription Medication prescription medication Use in Medicare Part D, 
appears in the academic journal Health Affairs, which is a pretty prominent uh, health economics journal. Um, but it turns out that that was the most read and most shared article for the Journal of Health Affairs. Um, is this correct? Did sort of the attention that this uh, article got, and we'll talk about the specifics, specifics, did it surprise you? I mean, did it kind of catch you off guard? I, I know there was a lot of, you had a number of media calls and that stuff. Uh, actually, the first time we tried to record this, uh, you got a call from NPR wanting to yeah. interview you on the same issue. So has the has the reception of this been surprising? Have you experienced anything like this in your career before? Uh, no, no, this was, uh, this, it, it, it did surprise me. Uh, the, the magnitude of the attention surprised me. I, you know, I knew when uh, my co-author Ashley, uh, Ashley Bradford, who I full disclosure is my daughter, um, uh, when Ashley and I did the paper, I, I, I anticipated that it would be, uh, it would be well received because it was the first paper that had done what we thought was an obvious thing. I mean, I, you know, I actually, this is one of those papers where I won't really claim that she and I had any enormous, <laughs> you know, insight and some clever idea. It's like, well, this was, this was the obvious thing to do. Uh, <laughs> nobody had done it. Uh, so I figured that, uh, that it would get some attention. So uh, yes, you're right. We are the, we are the top uh, article ever as far as media attention in, in the history of health affairs. And in wow. fact, in the, um, of the um, 8 million or so scientific publications that, Altmetric, which is the media tracking company, follows. I think we're right now somewhere at 350th on that list out of you know wow. eight million. So uh, it did receive an enormous amount of attention, <laughs> uh, which was you know it was really one gratifying that people read the paper. That's always nice, but it was also gratifying to be able to have a, a platform to say, hey, let's consider evidence uh, in this discussion of. An important policy question, and, and and since it was a new kind of evidence, people paid attention to. You know, clinicians have been out there, uh, I think, waving the flag of evidence about about the clinical benefits of cannabis for a long time. So people have been trying to introduce evidence into the debate, and to greater or lesser degrees. Uh, but this was a new type of evidence where we were saying, well, look at the amount of money that uh, that could be saved, and you know, the the numbers were big enough that 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 it got people's attention. So that was nice. Yeah. So on that, uh, well, just a sort of a quick little side story. It was as uh, the, David was generating the media attention, I was quite entertained because on my own social media, people I sort of was loosely connected with were sharing articles that were covering your work. And I was like, <laughs> ah, that's David. <laughs> um, okay. So you, you, you sort of started to highlight where I wanted to go next. It was a little bit more detail on this specific paper. Um, so the, the basic question, as I understand it from uh, reading your paper, um, is did legalizing uh, medical cannabis or medical marijuana, as it's sort of referred to in this paper, lead to uh, people actually using cannabis as a treatment for things like anxiety, depression, pain management, seizures, sleep disorder, uh, among others, instead of prescription medication? So the, the, one of the primary questions, I think, is that when the medical cannabis legislation was passed, was there actually a, what we'll call a kind of a substitution effect? Did people go from using prescriptions to medical cannabis? And your results seem to suggest that indeed among the uh, Medicare users, among this uh, group of the population, um, people did shift from using prescription medication to uh, medical cannabis. Am I 
and then there's the piece about the the finance. But am I kind of interpreting that correct, or am I missing a piece? Uh, you're you're interpreting it mostly correct. Right. Um, the uh, you're right that that what started us on this path was saying, oh. Uh, actually, we started this path because we were going to write a different paper, and we needed to know the answer to this question, and we just figured, well, someone's done it, so we went out and looked for the publications like this that we thought were going to exist. What we wanted to know is, okay, we call, we talk about medical cannabis. Are people using it as a medicine? That's, the, that's an important question. The, 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 where, where we want to be really careful in this paper and the subtlety that's not quite reflected in how you characterize it is that we can't actually see whether people are substituting from, uh, say, pain medications, prescription medications, to cannabis. Sadly, there is no data set that actually exists that looks at people's health conditions um, and their, their uh, you know, medical uses or prescription uses and their cannabis use. That, that doesn't exist out there. So what we asked was half of the question, but nonetheless, we think a persuasive half, which is to say, well, if cannabis is medicine, then people should react to it when it becomes available, like they'd react to introduction of any new medical product, right? That is, so if there's, um, if you're uh, taking a bunch of certain antidepressants and some new blockbuster antidepressant comes online, what will you see? Well, you'll see, well, one, you'd see the increase in the new blockbuster. We can't see that, right? But what you would, the other thing you'd see is the use of the other antidepressants goes down as people, as you point out, substitute from it to the other ones. So we've got kind of a blinders put on us as far as are they using more cannabis? But what we are able to look at is are they using less of the other things? And so what we did was we went through a, a, a careful process, maybe a little tedious, I don't know that your viewers are going to want to know much about this, but with this careful process to identify um, uh, the kinds of medical conditions where cannabis might be useful. We don't want to look at the flu. Nobody imagines that you can treat the flu with cannabis, and so we know what the answer is to how do people substitute away from Tamiflu when, when uh, cannabis comes on. The answer is they don't, right? Sure. Um, so we wanted to identify those conditions where cannabis could be valuable. Um, and then we wanted to look at the set of drugs that the prescription drugs that are used to treat those conditions and then ask, well, when cannabis is available, do we see people using less of that? Now, we don't know if they're using they just like use less of that and don't treat themselves because now suddenly there's an option that wouldn't be rational. But we can't rule it out. Mm -hmm. um, but we want to see do they use less of this drug. And what we found in those areas that you mentioned, we found were anxiety drugs, for depression, um, for nausea-related drugs, particularly for pain management drugs, for psychosis drugs, seizure disorder drugs, and sleep disorder drugs. We found that when cannabis is approved and available in the state, the use of those prescription drugs in Medicare went down quite a lot. Uh, now, the interesting thing that we also try to do is because, again, we can't see cannabis, we can't know if cannabis is going up. So we actually ran what's called a falsification test. So we then identified four areas where we really didn't believe at all that cannabis would matter. Any viral drugs, any uh, biotic drugs, phosphorus stimulants, and blood thinners. And uh, in the case of those conditions I just talked to you about, we ran lots of versions of the model, the, the previous ones, that you know, anxiety, depression, uh, nausea, et cetera. And whenever we ran those models, we found pain medications, all of those went down when cannabis became available. 
Whenever we ran the ones on antibiotics, antivirals, phosphorus stimulants, or blood thinners, we never found an effect, right? So what that said to us is when we expected to see an effect, we saw it. When we expected not to see an effect, we didn't see it. Um, we had data. We didn't have a sample of Medicare Part D prescription bills. We had data on all Medicare Part D prescription bills. So putting, you know, the statistical design, the fact that we had the census of, of prescriptions, the fact that we had these falsification tests, all of it tell a story that suggests very large reductions, particularly for pain medication use when cannabis is made available in the states. So I'm going to sort of restate the... Uh, a little bit of what you said and see if I can, since I didn't get it right the first time, let's see if I can get it right the second time. Um, so my understanding is, is that you have data of every prescription medication um, prescribed through Medicare Part D, right? During the, some time frame. Correct. And Initially 2000 to 2013. Now we actually have redone the analysis on new data from I'm sorry, from 2010 to 2013, now from 2010 to 2015. So we've added two years to the data. Excellent. And the, the, the effect is bigger. The effect's bigger. Okay, so what you did is you had from 2010 to 2013, and during that time period, some states adopted medical cannabis laws and some didn't. And so right. what you were able to do, it's called a, the, the sort of statistical term for it is a difference in difference model. But essentially right. what you were able to do is you were able to look at states, let's say, um, what's an example of one state that turned that uh, uh, passed medical cannabis legislation during that time period? Do you know one off the top of your head? Oh, off the top of my head, uh, I guess uh, it's, it's in the paper. <laughs> <laughs> I, I refer you to the paper, but uh, let's say um, Vermont might have turned it on during that time period. New, New Hampshire effectively did, uh, even though it, it came about in a weird way. But let's say New Hampshire. Okay, so let's say New Hampshire. So New Hampshire passes. A law in 2011, and they start making it available in 2011, hypothetically. So they had some number of prescriptions across pain, anxiety, sleep, other issues that we think uh, cannabis might treat. And they had a number of those prescriptions in that state in 2010. They turn on or they pass legislation about medical cannabis. And then you can see in, say, 2012 that the number of prescriptions across the drugs that treat pain and anxiety and sleep went down and then went down relative to, to uh say um a state like texas Mississippi that did, or, never, or texas that yeah. never changed it exactly yeah. so we compare the changes in states that adopt it to changes in the states that didn't adopt it to try to rule out the fact well you know texas and in New Hampshire, quite different, uh, and mm -hmm. so uh, and we need to we need to take that into account, and the design does that. And that also takes into account, for example, if there had been a broad decrease in prescription, uh, uh, just the number of prescriptions throughout the country. This kind of design, this research design that you have, kind of takes that into consideration. Correct. That's right. Okay, and the other cool piece about this is you found it across the conditions that you expected that cannabis should be able to treat based on the science, and then you didn't find a corresponding decrease on um, these antibiotics and some of these other types of prescriptions that you didn't expect. So you found what you expected on uh, medications that managed pain and that there was a decrease during this time period, and then on drugs pharmaceuticals that you wouldn't expect that cannabis could serve as a substitute, there weren't statistically different uh, amounts prescribed. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. Yeah. And so you did this in Medicare. And as I remember, 
there was an estimate, at least in the paper, of roughly, I think it's like $450 million that would have been saved if all states had implemented medical uh, medical cannabis laws. Is that about right? So, yeah, if we counterfactually turned on all the states uh, in 2013, we estimate that across these nine categories of conditions we studied that Medicare would have spent, as you say, 468, nearly 400, nearly 500 million dollars less. Now, let me just say that when we uh, in our current paper, which is the bigger version of this, this is currently under review, where we brought in the additional two years because we have those additional two years, we can actually look more carefully at cannabis laws. Mm -hmm. We can look at dispensary-based laws versus home cultivation-only laws. Uh, we have more recent data. More states have adopted it. And actually, our current estimates are in 2014, if all states had turned on dispensary-based cannabis laws, Medicare would have spent about $2 billion, with a B, $2 billion less. That's about 1% of Medicare Part D expenditures. This is a big number. Yeah. I mean, even in Washington, $2 billion is an amount of money that you wouldn't want to throw people away. people pay attention to. Yeah. Wow. And so this sort of starts to lay out the case for, it. there's a scientific case for this being, uh, for cannabis being a substitute, a different type of prescription for a variety of ailments. The science on that is pretty clear now. And uh, we know that cannabis uh, is much less likely to kill you. Actually, there are no documented cases right. of cannabis kill, of overdosing on cannabis killing someone and so there's the safety aspect and the addiction aspect and now we have this piece that you're kind of filling in which is it just medicare alone we'll talk here in a moment about medicaid but just on medicare in 2014 it would have saved two billion dollars overall yeah potentially that's what we estimate yeah wow okay so uh, now you have the follow-up study that you're talking about but in between that you did a piece on medicaid so just uh just give me the the broader view of that, my guess is you used a similar study design, and except you're looking at the Medicaid population, and you also developed uh, some number of savings. So is, did you find very similar um, results in terms of across the different types of ailments, and uh, was it similar in terms of the amount of uh, money that was saved? Uh, yes, we, we used exactly the same study design because we wanted the two papers to be uh, to be comparable to one another. Um, we found exactly the same pattern of of response. Um, they were slightly a few of them were not as statistically significant because the data it should be you know, with the Medicare data we already been talking about. We had initially like eighty five million observations. It's every doctor, every drug, every year. Uh, with Medicaid, we're looking at actual state level aggregates uh, by quarter. So you know where we went from eighty five million observations, we went down to like ten thousand observations. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to get the same. Just absurdly significant results, sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, the patterns are exactly the same. Uh, again, pain was the biggest potential savings, um, very statistically significant. Um, and we we looked at just medic Medicaid fee for service, and there's some technical reasons in the data that we did that. So Medica Medicaid in the United States is provided fee for service, which is kind of like Medicare, right? And it's also provided as a managed care. Uh, flavor, right? Um, fee for service is only 26% of Medicaid, right? So for the 26% of Medicaid that fee for service represents, we estimated 2014 that Medicaid would have saved about $1 billion. So if you inflate that uh, to account, account fee for service and managed care, it's potential that we're looking at three and a half 
to four billion dollars of say potential savings if every state had adopted dispensaries in 2014. So you put the two together, I mean we're approaching five to six billion dollars uh, nationally from just those two programs. This completely sets aside the the uh, privately insured individuals, mm -hmm. which nobody's looked at yet. Mm -hmm. And they make up about what percentage of the population after Medicare and Medicaid? Uh, I believe about, that's a good question. I, I believe around 60% of the population. Okay. So, so across uh, the elderly, uh, you know, speaking in broad strokes, across the elderly, which is they are insured by Medicare, and across the low-income individuals that qualify for Medicaid, and um, those two just put together from roughly 2014, if all the states had medical cannabis laws, I mean, it sounds like we're talking about five or six billion dollars. It could potentially be that large. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, okay. So we've kind of laid out, uh, and by the way, I, I want to do mention for the listeners, the second paper can be found. It's also in health affairs. The title of it, it's also with Ashley Bradford is medical marijuana laws. Um, may be associated with a decline in the number of prescriptions for Medicaid enrollees. So that's the, the second paper kind of in this, uh, I guess, essentially a series that you're doing. Yeah. Um, now, you have a, a working paper that you gave me access to um, that sort of ties in the opioid epidemic a little bit more explicitly. So I want to just mention that briefly. We've talked about the cost savings, and we've talked sort of theoretically, I suppose, or logically about how this shift should help with opioid deaths. Um, now, tell me a little bit more about the paper you have. You have a working paper that's with uh, Grace Adams, Amanda Abraham, and also Ashley Bradford um, that suggests that these medical cannabis laws, I believe, if, if, uh, if I read it correctly, could have prevented about 27-ish thousand drug overdose deaths over, I think, maybe the past decade. Uh, more than a decade and a half. Decade uh, and a half. 2000, 2014, yes. And in that, you also, as you were alluding to earlier, differentiate between types of uh, medical cannabis laws, the what we've been calling dispensary laws versus cultivation. So could you tell me a little bit about that paper? And also, in, in case it's not in, in clear, the difference between uh, cultivation and um, dispensary, maybe highlight why you make that distinction and what it means for that paper. Sure. So, uh, so we're actually in this. We're following on uh, a paper that uh, was published um, maybe a couple of years ago now in uh, JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, by Marcus Bakuber and some colleagues that looked at state uh, at, at state aggregate deaths uh, and medical cannabis laws over over a shorter period of time, as I recall. But he only had access to state level data. And so, what we've done in uh, our paper is looked at uh, county level opiate. Uh, mortality, and the reason is because uh, one, of course, we want to we want to get more more detailed look at things, but, but also there's reasons to believe that that policy, lots of policies, lots of opiate policies, cannabis policies, lots of policies affect rural areas very differently than they affect urban areas, and so for that you need sub-state uh, mm -hmm. data. So we're looking at uh, all the you know mortality in all the counties in the U.S. Uh, from 2000 to 2014. We also because we have more data that Bakuber didn't, we can ask the question of, does it matter if a state gives you, allows you to have access by going to a dispensary and buying cannabis, as opposed to going to your home and growing cannabis? Now, on its face, it seems patently obvious that it would matter, right? So imagine that 
a patient is in has lower back pain, uh, has come to the doctor, the doctor uh, says, okay, uh, you can take care of help this pain with a prescription for an opiate. Here's an opiate prescription. Or you can, in a home cultivation only state, you can go home, get a room in your house or some room that's climate controlled and light controlled, buy a bunch of plants, work hard in two months, half of them might generate some product that will help you manage your pain. Or you can go down the store, street to the pharmacy and buy an opiate. I mean, in that case, that's going to be a uh, that's going to be heavily biased toward the opiate. Now, if, on the other hand, the physician can say, okay, here's a prescription for an opiate, you in a dispensary state, you can go down the street and to the pharmacy and get your opiate, or I can sign a recommendation form, and you can go down the street to a dispensary and buy some cannabis. So, you know, go down there right next door to each other, right? Same effort. In that case, it's, it's you're not biasing the outcome against uh, against cannabis. And so what we found is when we took that into account, one, as you would expect, the, the, well, first, consistent with the findings that Ashley and I have that show pain medication, uh, the largest chunk of which is opiates, goes down when cannabis becomes available. That would suggest less opiate use and therefore potentially less abuse and death. But uh, what Amanda, Grace, Ashley and I found is that when cannabis laws go into effect, opiate deaths go down. Same thing Bachuber found. But what we found was those effects are just much, much larger in states that had dispensaries as opposed to states that have home cultivation only. So that if we counterfactually turned on in our estimates, um, our estimates um, at the time, uh, now as if we counterfactually turned on dispensary-based cannabis laws for the uh, entire time period, it would be something like 1,900, almost 2,000 deaths per year uh, on average across that time period. And as you say, uh, from 2000 to 2014, it would be almost 28,000 people who wouldn't have died uh, from opiates um, if they'd had access to dispensary-based cannabis, uh, you know, dispensary-based cannabis access. So with this paper, um, you now have sort of strong evidence of the potential financial cost savings um, and also to taxpayer-funded programs. And you also have some evidence that suggests that uh, medical cannabis could save a couple thousand lives a year. Um, so uh, <laughs> the case for this is seeming really strong as you can yeah. lay out the scientific evidence, the empirical evidence for for preventing deaths and for saving money. It seems like any reasonable cost-benefit analysis that's sort of rationally approached would suggest that these laws should be enacted. So what do you what do you think the future holds on this problem? It seems like from what I've followed and, and looking through your papers, the trend is is more liberalization, I suppose, of medical cannabis laws. But also at the federal level right now, as I understand, and I know you have an op-ed on this with Ashley as well. The Attorney General, the current Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, has kind of come out really against, uh, uh, well, I guess cannabis broadly, but I imagine specifically cannabis legislation as well. And he's sort of saying things like, hey, this, this is still Schedule One drug at the federal level and we can enforce these laws. So <laughs> what's going on here and kind of what do you see as the, I know, Political scientists, economists, public administration folks have all made the folly of trying to predict the future. Um, yeah. But 
where do you see where we stand now, I suppose? And do you have hope moving forward that these these laws can, can will continue to uh, proliferate? Or what's your sense of the current policy space? Well, I mean, I, it, it is the case that the current attorney general, um, who, you know, I mean, let's give let's give him, uh, you know, the benefit of the doubt, right? The current attorney general is um, nearing 70, right? So he grew up in a time and his attitudes were formed in a time when people very reasonably thought cannabis was, in fact, uh, a drug with no value whatsoever and only a drug that led to greater drug abuse, right? So um, he should learn. And I'm not giving a pass for not learning from the evidence, but but he is from a generation that uh, was reasonably skeptical of cannabis. Right? So that those attitudes that must have been formed in him in 1970 uh, seem to have persisted even in the face of overwhelming contrary evidence. Right? So he still makes statements like good people don't use marijuana. And he uses the word marijuana, of course, not cannabis. Um, and uh, has made statements disavowing any potential medical benefit of cannabis. And so he wishes, if you take him at his word, to restart a war on drugs, and that includes a war on cannabis. Now, in the face of that, however, what does he confront? He confronts a clinical community that is rapidly approaching consensus that cannabis is uh, useful, at least in some circumstances. And he faces, uh, a, well, he faces state policymakers and state governments that are rapidly seeing the economic benefits of cannabis. Cannabis in Colorado is a billion and a half dollar industry at this point. Um, estimates are that state governments will pull in, you know, approaching $700 million in tax revenue this, this year for cannabis, uh, for the cannabis industry. That's literally tens of thousands of jobs, right? <laughs> I mean, we talk about saving the coal industry uh, that that might have 15,000 jobs in, in the U.S. right now, uh, as opposed to the cannabis industry that has um, many, a multiple factor of, of employment uh, and supports even, even more employment. So the state economic interests are opposed to Jeff Sessions. And finally, there is, and, and, and I say this as a policy researcher, a truly amazing national consensus around medical cannabis. The latest Quinnipiac poll uh, that came out in, in uh, April or May, actually there was one that came out even more recently than that, uh, maybe, in, maybe in June, um, found that 94% um, of Americans support the uh, access to clinical cannabis. That's 96% of Democrats and 90% of Republicans, right, across all age groups. So there is, as much as is humanly possible, a universal consensus in the United States that patients should be able with their doctors to access cannabis to treat medical conditions. So pretty much everybody, nine out of 10 Americans, um, every state that has a cannabis industry and the clinical community are all going to oppose Jeff Sessions. I don't know who his allies are, and uh, his opponents are powerful, so he will lose. And my uh, my assumption is that 
Well, actually, my, my belief is that there will be universal uh, state approval for some kinds of cannabis access in the very near future. We are almost there now. If you include states like my home state of Georgia that permit, and actually your home state of Georgia, mm -hmm, yep. that actually have approved uh, cannabis extracts, CBD-rich, THC-poor cannabis extracts for clinical uh, treatment, 45 or 47 states have some kind of cannabis access. Um, as I said, 29 of them plus D.C. have just outright botanical cannabis. But there are 16 or so states that have said, well, okay, we don't give you access uh, to botanical cannabis, but you can have an extract to its low in THC. We're, we're very rapidly approaching 100% of states that, that whose laws stand contrary to the Controlled Substances Act. States like Mississippi and, and Arkansas and Georgia. Uh, in addition to states like California and, and Washington and Massachusetts. And so, I mean, when you've got that kind of, I mean, I, I can't imagine a broader political spectrum than <laughs> yeah. I just laid out right there. Uh, I don't think he's going to win. And ultimately, I think for places like Georgia, we'll in fact see the experiences of places like Arkansas and Florida that have just approved botanical cannabis. The sky doesn't fall. And in a few years, places like Georgia are going to think, well, our people need access and more importantly, our budgets need uh, infusions. And I think you're going to see Georgia move over to a botanical approval before the decade, you know, before 10 years is gone. And, you know, it sounds like a long time, but in, in, in something like this, uh, the last 15 years, I mean, we could see complete liberalization of, of uh, access to at least medical purposes for cannabis. That's a big, big change. Yeah, one of the things that we, we didn't uh, touch on that, as we're getting close to the hour mark, we're not going to spend really any time on, but just to highlight is the budgetary aspect for state governments. Uh, I mean, this is a serious revenue source for them at a time when lots of states are struggling to pay their bills. And so not only is it cost saving on the federal insurance, health insurance side and people uh, paying for their Medicare and Medicaid, it's also a boost to uh, state governments uh, sure. and their I mean, budgets. So like like, as I said, our estimates for Medicaid would show that, uh, you know, Medicaid is going to, I mean, Medicaid is shared by the states and, and the federal government, but not quite half and half. The federal government pays a bit more. But, you know, Medicaid could save a billion dollars. If that's a billion dollars less, let's say 500 million of that is from the states, and the states are going to, it looks like, collect um, Seven hundred million dollars in taxes. I mean, you know, this is this is a a, a, a one point two billion dollars swing in their favor. Yeah, yeah. Under very conservative estimates. Well, I'm glad the evidence is out there. Um, some of this is uh, it's interesting. It's interesting to see all the pieces come together and then think about uh, kind of the case now. I mean, the case seems pretty open and shut from a scientific case from an empirical case from a financial case um so hopefully um some of our uh legislators will uh give your work a read and examine the evidence carefully uh, because as i sit here and try to evaluate it um it's hard to think of good case good uh, logical uh, empirical scientific based reasons as to why you wouldn't implement this policy it helps have additional resources for other things. It helps prevent deaths. It helps overall uh, health. Um, it seems like a pretty compelling case we have. Um, well, in respect of your time, David, uh, I want to go ahead and bring this to a close. The one thing that I'd like to do is I know that you are um, fairly active on Twitter. 
And so for people that want to follow your work, um, I was going to give you an opportunity to share any um, your, your Twitter handle or any ways in which any listeners could interact with you. Uh, well, uh, my Twitter handle is it's a little weird. I, uh, I believe it is B-R-A-D-F-O-W-D-1. Mm. Um, so it's like my last name with a, a W in place of the, of the second R. Um, for very weird reasons. Um, <laughs> so yeah, BRADFOWD1 uh, at uh, for Twitter. Um, and otherwise, if you know, if you, I, I can be found at the University of Georgia uh, website and um, my contact information is there if anybody uh, seriously likes to, wants to contact. And my, my plan will be, uh, David, to put, uh, to make some links available to some of the articles. I'll probably post your, um, your uh, Ashley and your, um, op-ed piece in, uh, I think that was in Bloomberg, um, put your contact info out, but uh, we can we can work through that. But I want to make some, and some of these studies we've discussed, I want to make available for the listeners really easy from uh, the blog where I'll be posting this. So thanks again. This is the first interview uh, I've done now for Public Problems. I hope uh, listeners found it interesting. I hope you enjoyed the experience, David, and uh, hopefully um, you'll be exploring, continuing to explore this issue and other interesting issues, and I can have you on again Uh, to talk about some other issue in the future. Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to this episode. We will be posting the next episode in about two weeks. You can access episodes from a number of different sources, including iTunes Podcast, SoundCloud, or our YouTube channel, Public Problems. Links to the episodes will also be posted in our Facebook group, which is called Public Problems, on my website at justinbullock.org, where you can also find a corresponding blog post that will contain all the references and additional information from the interview, and will tweet out a link to the episode from our Twitter handle, which is at Public Problems with an underscore at the end. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.